This is Real Estate Rookie episode 324. Typically, when we're using our private money lenders on a flip, we'll say like no financing contingency and we'll say like a 21 day close. So we don't necessarily say like, hey, it's an all cash offer, but those are the things we tell them, hey, we're going to close quickly and we don't have a financing contingency. Those typically kind of make our offers a little bit more competitive. My name is Ashley Kerr and I am here with my co-host, Tony J. Robinson. And welcome to the Real Estate Rookie podcast, where every week, twice a week, we bring you the inspiration, motivation, and stories you need to hear to kickstart your investing journey. Today, we're coming back with another rookie reply, and we've got some really good uh, kind of conversations going going on today. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, financing options, hard money versus private money, and what the differences are, and, and kind of which one works for each situation. We're going to talk about real estate inspections and the timing of those. Should you be doing it before you close on a property, during the closing process, before you even submit an offer? We'll give you an answer to that. We're also going to talk a little bit about fire burning toilets and uh, why you should or should not buy properties with uh, with that type of plumbing situation. Then we talk about partnering with your parents, different ways to actually structure that partnership. And then what happens if you come into a property that has some wasted space, like two living rooms that could be an additional bedroom. And Tony and I break down the process as to which we have both encountered and our recommendations as to how you can make more money off of that second living room by turning it into a bedroom. All right. Now, before we get into today's questions, I want to give a shout out to someone by the username of Dr. Goldstein, uh, who left us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, Dr. Goldstein says, informative and motivational. The show is great. They cover a wide range of real estate investing topics in an accessible way. Episode 273 inspired me to try something new. Two months later, I've closed on a deal and I'm excited to get it going. Thank you, Ashley and Tony. And guys, that is why we create the Rookie Podcast, to inspire people just like Dr. Goldstein to hear these stories, to hear these tactics, to hear these strategies and take action. And the only way we can find more people to inspire is if we get more reviews of the podcast it helps push it out to more folks. So if you're part of the Rookie audience, please do leave us an honest rating and review on whatever platform it is you're listening to so we can impact more people just like Dr. Goldstein. Okay. And this week's social media shout out goes to Rental Property Couple. Uh, Patrick McGrath and his wife, their husband and wife team on their way to fire, which is financial independence, retire early. Uh, they have 35 rentals that they have acquired in the last three years and five plus million in assets, but they uh, do a great job of sharing their journey uh, on their Instagram place page. So go ahead and give them a follow and check out their page for some motivation, inspiration, and also to probably ask some questions. So that's at rental property couple. And if you want to be featured uh, on Instagram uh, or any social media threads, TikTok, uh, make sure to tag Tony and I uh, in your stories in a picture. Uh, use the hashtag uh, real estate rookie. Uh, and that's how we've been finding these awesome Instagram accounts that we can share with you guys. Clear your feed of funny memes and start adding in other real estate investors to connect and network with. What does financial freedom mean to you? More time with your family and friends, the ability to take that globe trotting trip, or do you, do you just want to sleep in until 10 a.m. every day with no boss to answer to? Real estate is your gateway to financial freedom, but rent-ready property management software is what keeps your free time actually free. 
From seamless online rent collection to custom applications, property marketing tools, and repair request tracking, RentReady allows your portfolio to run on autopilot. The best part is you can manage all your rentals right from your cell phone. And that's why RentReady is my favorite property management app around. I use it for all my rentals. Whether you've got one or a dozen doors, RentReady helps you streamline how you manage your rental properties to create a life you love in 2024. Now, Rent Ready is already included in your pro membership at Bigger Pockets. If you're not a pro, they're offering a six month plan for $1. Visit rentready.com. That's R E N T R E D I.com. And use the code BP Investor. That's BP, like Bigger Pockets, Investor to get six months of Rent Ready for $1. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com slash BP. You dream of ditching your nine to five and starting your real estate career, but with home prices and interest rates at an all-time high, you're not sure how you'll find a worthwhile wholesale deal or a quality rental property. Look, here's an expert secret. You don't have to rely on on on-market properties to start making money in real estate. You actually can find off-market properties with homeowners who are motivated to sell right from your phone, tablet, or computer with PropStream. PropStream provides data for over 155 million properties nationwide. With more than 120 search filters, including pre-foreclosures, pre-probate, and bankruptcy, it helps you quickly find motivated sellers even without MLS access. Now, PropStream offers public record data as well as an MLS sales estimate with over 99% accuracy to help you get the most accurate comps possible. You'll also get lead automation, skip tracing, and marketing tools like emails and postcards to close more deals quickly. They even have a free learning academy to help you get started. Get 50 leads free with their seven-day free trial at propstream.com slash BP. That's www.propstream.com slash BP. Our first question today is from Mike Joseph. Hi, all. I've been financing my own deals so far but plan to use other short-term financing methods like hard money to scale faster. This is a very basic question, but when funding a deal using hard money, is that viewed as favorable as cash from a seller perspective? When you make an offer, do you waive the financing contingency to make it more appealing to the seller? So Tony, let's get your thoughts on that um, for using hard money. Yeah, I mean, you, you definitely do see um, some folks that that'll say that they've got 
cash, quote unquote, when they're buying with hard money. I think it depends also on kind of like the way that you're using that hard money. If it's traditional hard money, you might have to jump through a few more hoops, um, especially depending on like your experience level. But say you've got like a true private money lender um, where, you know, you're just cutting them a check of interest every quarter, or every month or whatever it is. And you, you really do have the cash in your bank, even though it's technically a loan. That way is a little bit easier, a little less friction that way. Um, so I, I think it depends, uh, Mike, on how you kind of set up that private money or that hard money transaction on if you feel super comfortable or confident calling it cash. I, I do like, for example, we, we buy a lot of our flips and we will say that we're paying cash, uh, even though we're using debt, but it's because we have private money lenders that we have a relationship with and you know, we've kind of already got the financing lined up. Um, so the benefits of going with hard money versus private money is that typically, uh, your lenders are going to make it a little bit easier than a traditional and especially like a, like an FHA loan or something like that. Right. Um, if you can come in with a loan that has a higher likelihood of closing, I think that's, what's more important to the seller than even kind of what debt you have per se. Yeah. So in New York state, when you close on a property, you have to use attorneys and then there's a lot more title work that goes into it. And it's a lot harder process to actually get the hard money lenders lean on the actual property when you're closing. So I have put that it was cash before, and then it's been questioned by the sellers as to like, why are we having, you know, why are the attorneys having to do all of this stuff that looks like you're getting financing now? Um, so I've learned not to put it as cash. Um, it's just way makes it way more clear to the sellers that yes, there is going to be like a more work from the attorneys, which may take a little bit more time, um, as far as closing. So I am definitely, um, on the side of saying that you are getting financing, but I know a ton of, ton of other investors who say that it's cash because they can get the money so quickly from their hard money lender. And it's not as much of a lengthy process to go through New York state to actually do that. Yeah. Typically when we're using our private money lenders on, on a flip, we'll, we'll say like no financing contingency, uh, mm -hmm. and we'll say like a 21 day close. So we don't necessarily say like, Hey, it's an all cash offer, but those are the things we tell them, Hey, we're, we're going to close quickly. Um, and we don't have a financing contingency and, yeah. and those typically kind of make our offers a little bit more competitive. Yeah. For private money, I've always done, it's a cash offer and then yeah, no financing contingency in this, but with hard money, I've started saying that it is financing, um, on there. Yeah. And let's just kind of break that down to ask for, for our rookies that maybe aren't familiar with the differences. So, um, there, there's traditional lending, right? Where you're going like Bank of America or, or your local credit union or, you know, et cetera, to go out and get debt to buy a property. Uh, but then there's kind of more the creative side where you're using hard money or uh, private money. Private money uh, is probably the, the simpler option. So let's say that Ashley and I are friends. I mean, we, <laughs> we are friends. Um, <laughs> but let's say that Ashley's got, you know, uh, $500,000 just sitting in the bank right now. And I find a deal where the purchase price and the rehab comes out to $500,000. So I can go to Ashley and say, Ashley, look, I found this deal. Uh, the, the total project cost is $500,000. I think the property will be worth uh, $750,000 by the time we're done. So we have some baked in equity there, maybe $800,000. Um, and I say, Ashley, can you loan me that $500,000? 
I'll pay you a fixed interest payment uh, every month, every quarter, maybe at the end of the project of whatever, 10%. So that means Ashley's getting $50,000 per year uh, on her $500,000, right? If we're paying her 10%. Um, so Ashley says, yes, Tony, of course. So Ashley then either wires me the money for the deal. That's one way to do it. Or she can wire it into to, to and escrow. But basically Ashley is funding that deal for me. It's a one-to-one -one kind of person transaction and it's based on our relationship uh, with each other. That's a private money transaction. A hard money lender, typically that's a person that, that's running a business of some sort. So it's not someone maybe that you have a super close personal relationship with. This is someone that's got a website and they're funding tons of deals, you know, on a, on a monthly basis. And they're going to have super strict underwriting guidelines. They're going to, they're going to want to see your property. They're going to want to see your deal. They're going to want to make sure that you're, you've got a good scope of work. They're going to want to know if, if you've got a good contractor, like they want to make sure they're really kind of protecting the asset, uh, and their money because they don't know you personally. Um, and typically with a, a hard money lender, you're going to see higher fees. So you're going to maybe pay a little bit more money up front in fees. Uh, they call those points. Uh, your interest rate might be a little bit higher than a private money lender again, because this is a business for them. So, you know, if you're paying whatever it's 6% on a traditional six or 7% on a traditional investment, maybe you're paying 12% or something for, for hard money. Right. Um, I don't, I've never used hard money. So I, I know the rates are higher, but typically they're going to charge a little bit more, but hard money is a business. Whereas private money is a relationship focus piece. Private money. If you have access to private money, it's usually so much easier and better than hard money, in my opinion. And that's why I've never used hard because we do have access to private money. So it's like, why would I jump through the hoops of a hard money lender when I can just go the private money route? Now, there are some people that I know that combine the two of them. And you know, some hard money lenders are okay with this, others are not. But say you have a hard money lender that is okay with this. Um, say that you have a deal and you, know, you need to put up $100,000 and your hard money lender is going to cover the other four hundred. Some hard money lenders will allow you to basically get a private money lender to cover that $100,000. So when you go take down this property, it's zero cash out of pocket for you. You have your hard money lender who's putting up the 400. You have your private money lender who's putting up the 100. Together, that combines to cover your total project costs. And you just pay interest back to both of those people. That's one option as well. Um, again, I've just never gone that route because I prefer just to kind of keep it all with the, with the private money. But you, it is more leverage, right? And, and that's the only reason I thought about it. Because say that I go out and I'm, I'm, you know, like at one point we might have, you know, two, three million dollars in private money loans out to different people. And it's like, that's all tied up in maybe three or four properties. Now, imagine if I took that two million and I use those as down payments on a bunch of uh, hard money loans. I could have like 10 deals that I'm doing at one time if I spread it out that way, but there's more risk, there's more cost. So we just kind of keep it simple, all private money. Yeah. I have a friend who does, um, he did his first hard money loan. So this was one of his first rental properties. Actually, he got a hard money lender and they would do 80%. And then he had to bring the other 20%, but he was allowed to get private financing for 10% of that. So 10%, he had to show proof that it was coming from, you know, his bank account. The other 10%, he could borrow from someone else. And then the other 80% was covered by the hard money lender. Okay. So our next question is by Jesse Unrath. And the question is, is it possible to have an inspection done on a property before submitting an offer? And yes, it is. So especially if the property is off market and you're talking to the seller directly, you can go ahead and ask to have an inspection done. The problem that I see with doing this is that if you guys are not even in the same range and ballpark and you go ahead and spend $500 on an inspection, 
then you give them their offer and they say, no, like we actually want a hundred thousand dollars more for the property. (laughs) So that's one reason I like to get the property under contract first before I go and take, you know, pay that expense of paying a home inspector. The property is on the MLS. One thing that um, inspections can take a long time. The last property inspection I did, it took them three and a half hours to do the property. It was a, I think, 1600 square foot single family house, three and a half hours. So typically when you schedule a showing, um, you know, the agent time blocks your, you know, 15 minute, 30 minute window of when you're going to be there to see the house. So it would have to be made clear that you would like to view the property for the amount of time that the property um, was having the inspection so that you're not having other people have showings. And in today's hot market, you know, there could be back to back to back to back to back showings when the property is listed. So those are the the couple of concerns I can think about, but I would just be very open and honest with everybody, the sellers, your agent, their agent, whoever's involved that that's what you want to do is do an inspection before actually putting an offer in and then make sure you are prepared to pay that that money before making an offer. There are some pieces of, of a real estate transaction, or, or I guess some players in a real estate transaction that get paid no matter what. Um, a lender only gets paid if the deal closes. A, a a real estate agent only gets paid if the if the deal closes. But your uh, appraiser and your inspector they don't care if the deal closes. Like they get paid upfront, you know, when they render their services. Um, so to Ashley's point, it, it can get super expensive um, if you're out doing inspections on every single property that you're thinking about submitting an offer on. The reason you don't have to do that, uh, Jesse, is because when you submit your offer, typically you're giving a you're given a certain number of days for due diligence. Okay, so you should walk, you know, you should walk the property or have your your agent walk the property or at least get photos or a video walkthrough. So you get a good sense of the the general condition of the property. And based on that, you know, you can make some assumptions around, hey, what are some things that I feel based on this initial walkthrough that might need to be repaired or fixed or, or, you know, replaced the due diligence period is your opportunity. Now that you've got it under contract, now that you and that and that seller have agreed um, to at least an initial starting point for purchase price, now you can go through and do that super deep dive to you know get behind the walls and do whatever else you need to do to make sure that everything's good under the hood. But the reason you don't have to do a property inspection before is because you have that due diligence period uh, you know, during your escrow time to pull out if some big expense comes up or to ask for an additional credit from the seller if additional uh, things kind of pop on that inspection report. I typically write like 14 days for due diligence into most of my offers. Ashley, like what, what do you typically put? So for an inspection, we've actually really shortened that time um, frame. And we've been doing within like seven days is pretty much the max we're able to do right now. Um, but like we will tell them that we will do it as soon as we can get the home inspector out of there. Our, my agent will communicate that to the seller. And that's actually worked in our favor for a couple of our offers. So the last two properties that I offered on on the MLS where I wanted to do an inspection on them, we were able to complete this inspection within the first 48 hours of, you know, submitting our offer to them and them, you know, accepting it. So that has been like a super key thing is that we're able to go ahead and right away. And a lot of times I, before I put the offer in, a lot of the due diligence is done that I can do on the computer already because that's helping, you know, the basis of my offer the second piece is just really the inspection of the property and what kind of rehab is going to be done. Anything that has come up, what's the cost going to be to repair that? So 
we have to get the inspector in, which, you know, can take two days. Mostly it's usually that's when we can get them in two days from when we actually ask. So when our offer is uh, accepted and then, so within two days, and then we usually need about, you know, 12 to 24 hours after we get the results to actually decide uh, on the offer. And during that time period, we're collecting costs of what it would cost to make these repairs, um, finding out other information on the property that has come up, you know, during the inspection that, you know, we need to do some more research on. Like we had one, this was a lake house and it had an incinerator toilet in it. So this is where it burns it up, baby. (laughs) Is that real? Yes. So there is no septic and no sewer at this property and there were at surrounding properties. So one thing that we had to find out was like how much it would cost to install the the, septic system there. But this incinerator toilet, it's like... um. It's just the toilet. And then there's like a vent that comes out of it. And you put like a piece of paper in the toilet and there's like very strict instructions of how to do it. So during our inspection, our agent was, we actually were there with the the seller's agent. She's like, okay, the seller showed me how to do this. I'm going to show you guys how to use this toilet. And we went through like the whole process. So you take like the sheet of paper out and you put the sheet of paper in the toilet. Okay. And it's like closed off. So you just see like the bowl and then you go to the bathroom and then you have to push like a button to like to flush it first. (laughs) So it kind of like opens up the bottom of the toilet. Your paper falls down with your stuff in it. And then you it closes back up when you release the button and then you light the fire and it makes like a and you hear it like burning in there. And then every so often, like I think the seller said, like every week before they would leave the lake house, they would empty the ashes out. But like when you were outside and the toilet would flush, like you could smell like burning in the air out of the vent out the one side of the house if you were on that side of the house. So we had to do a lot of research um, on these toilets and be like, okay, first of all, if we want to use this as like our own residence, like, you know, you enjoy the lake house ourselves. Like we can deal with this for the price we're getting it, but to do it as a short-term rental, to try to explain to guests how to operate this thing. And like They burned the house down. The house would be burned down. So, so yeah, that was a big thing. And we ended up losing the property because we did the inspection and then we hadn't had attorney approval yet because it'd been over the weekend and somebody else submitted in a sight unseen offer and actually offered $70,000 more than we did. So they took that, but they reimbursed us for our inspection as kind That's of like cool. a courtesy. So that was nice, but it would have been way nicer at the price we were going to get this. I, I wonder if that person that bought it, you know, that kind of beat you to it, knew about this fire burning uh, toilet situation. Cause I've, I've <laughs> yeah. never heard of that before. Yeah. I mean, the property did close. We, uh, we have gone by on our boat and we see the, the new owners out on their dock. And yeah, stuff, so. that is wild. Craziest thing I think I've heard from a, a property inspection. So we've been trying to do them to answer your question, like in as short of time as possible. So that way, if we don't come to an agreement on something, the seller, we like say to the sellers this way, you have not lost time. And both of those offers, we were the first people to see the property. So we got it under contract right away. So what happened was in um, those circumstances, the one was actually a pocket listing. They never even listed it yet. And then the second one, they never let it go pending. They just said they were delaying showings. 
So we got to see it first. We put our offer in right away and they stopped showings. And that's why we agreed to rush the inspection and everything. So they didn't have to um, put it pending. And then we don't agree on the inspection. And then it goes back to being listed again, which can, you know, leave a dent into the property. So that's also like a negotiation technique is like when you submit your offer, if you know you're like one of the first and say like, you know, you don't have to put it pending until after our offer is submitted, we're going to do it so quickly that you just have to delay showings for a couple of days or whatever. But um, make sure you get that contract uh, and attorney approval <laughs> signed off on though, because yeah. that was a, definitely a big lesson for us that we learned. Crazy. Did you get a video? You got to send me the video of that, that fire breathing toilet. If you got one. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure we have one in all the pictures. We took. Yeah. <laughs> okay. The next question is from Will Kilby. I'm looking to find a home to flip and my parents have offered to be cash partners and I would like to manage the deal and then split the profits. How would I structure this type of deal? Just find a loan and have them fund the renovations. They could buy it with cash, but I feel like that would be more trouble and I don't want to risk that much of my parents' money. Any tips would really be appreciated. Well, Will. <laughs> First, he, he said the, the magic word. Anytime someone says this word in the podcast, we got we to gotta throw up a copy of the book. Uh, but Will. You should check out Real Estate Partnerships, written by Ashley Kier and Tony J. Robinson. So for those that haven't heard us yet, we've been talking about it nonstop, but Ash and I wrote a book uh, together called Real Estate Partnerships. It launched uh, August 10th. So as you listen to this episode, it should be out uh, anywhere to, to purchase. But head over to biggerpockets.com slash partnerships. We talk a ton about uh, partnership structures. But um, Ash, I guess, you know, what's your initial advice to Will uh, based on this question of how to structure this specific type of partnership? Yeah. So I think the first thing you need to decide is, are you going to go and get a loan and then just to fund the renovations from them? Um, or if they're, it's just going to be a cash purchase and they're going to fund the renovations. That's the first thing you need to decide. And yes, there is a lot of risk of them putting up their cash uh, for the property, but there's also a lot of risk um, getting a loan too, that the they could lose out on the the renovations. So I think if you know that you have access to a loan that you could get, whether it's a, a hard money lender or maybe a, another pr private money lender, but either way, you should feel comfortable and confident going into the deal that, you know, you're not going to lose the cash and your parents aren't going to lose out. The biggest thing I think of here is making sure that whatever structure you do, that it's in writing and everything is clear. If it is clear to your parents that this is a risk, this is an investment, and they are not guaranteed the cash, um, and that you're going to split the profits off of it. You could also, so there's two ways I could see here that you could structure it. So this could just simply be a debt partnership where they are going to lend you the money and you pay them a monthly percentage of interest. And they are guaranteed that money back where if you you know, don't sell it for what you thought, you are still going to eventually owe them that money. The second thing is you're going to be equity partners where your parents and you are, say you're going to split it 50-50. They're putting the money in. When the house sells, maybe they just get their money back and then you guys split whatever's left between the two of you. As far as the percentage of the profits, I would look at as to how much time and energy are you going to have to actually do managing the deal? Are you going to be acquiring the deal like you're going to find it? 
Are you going to be managing contractors? Are you going to be actually doing any of the work yourself? So I think that plays a a big role into um, how much percentage you should actually take. Um, If you end up getting getting the loan and the debt is going to be in your name, that also plays a lot more onto the weight of what you are bringing to the table. And that should definitely increase your percentage. If you're going to get the loan in your parents' name, then that definitely increases what they're bringing to the table. So those are kind of the things that I would look at. And also, you know, you're, you need to know what your parents want out of this too, before you can kind of decide which way to go. Is it they want to get the profits or they just want to, you know, get a, a set amount, you know, maybe a monthly payment or at the end when the project is done, they just want to have a percentage that they get from, you know, you borrowing their money. I think I, I, you know, me personally, I, I, I prefer owner flip to just make it a, a debt-based partnership. Um, you know, it, it, it gives a, a fixed kind of almost guaranteed return to the uh, money partner. And then it allows you as a person that's really managing the, the deal to get all of the upside. And funny enough, Will, uh, my mom is actually a private money lender on one of my flips. Um, I think we had... Um, two private money lenders lined up and we were short just like a little bit. So I reached out to my mom. She had a little bit of cash at the time and uh, she came in as a private money lender and you know, we paid her. We, we had her fill out all the same docs that our other private money lenders filled out. You know, she recorded the, you know, she had a promissory note, she had the deed of trust and everything got recorded with the county. Um, and we paid her, I think at the time we we're given like a 10% interest, you know, so we treated her the same way we did all of our other private money lenders. So everything as she said is, is spot on. Um, but I, me personally, I always like the, the idea of a, a debt partnership for flip. Um, and then equity partnerships more so for kind of like the long-term hold type situations. And then I would also look at as to what your parents' involvement will be. Will it just be cash partners or is it going to be your mom coming in and say, no, no, not that tile, return it. This tile will look better too. So that's also part of the reason maybe to do it as a debt partner. Right, so you, yeah. Your parents can't, you know, cause you know, every parent wants to parent their kid in some way, shape or form. So, um, <laughs> like I think, well, you got to ask yourself, do you want your parents trying to tell you, yeah, like, like tile selection and flooring and all that stuff. Right. And maybe that would be advantage for having them an equity partner, like, or maybe your dad is super handy where he would come in and be able to help with some of it too. So a lot of variables to to look at there, but I would like Tony said, like doing it the the debt structure is definitely a lot cleaner, um, and then doing it the other way to make a list of the roles and responsibilities that everyone is doing and kind of put a dollar amount to that, and then you know how much cash they're bringing, put a percentage to that. Who's getting the loan and put a percentage to that too. <laughs> When Bigger Pockets started podcasting, no one thought we needed a store, but then books, so many books, best-selling books, rookie books, partnership books. We needed the best real estate bookstore ever, so we chose Shopify. <laughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch stage to the first order stage to the, did we just sell out the whole store stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling real estate books or retro clothing, Shopify's platform helps you sell everywhere, online or in person. Now, speaking of online, did you know Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better than other leading commerce platforms? And no matter how big you grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control of your business. And that's why we chose Shopify for the bigger pocket 
Goods Bookstore. So sign up for a $1 per month trial at shopify.com slash bprookie, all lowercase. Again, go to shopify.com slash bprookie now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash bprookie. Rookies, 2024 is the year to start protecting your rental properties with an LLC. But look, you don't have to do all the paperwork and filing yourself. Corporate Direct is your professional and affordable option for getting your LLCs done right. They'll handle all the state filings, draft your operating agreements, and act as your registered agent. They'll even help you comply with the Corporate Transparency Act, which is a new federal disclosure law affecting every real estate investor. Corporate Direct is a family business founded by attorney, author, and rich dad advisor Garrett Sutton over 35 years ago. Now, his son Ted is a licensed attorney working with him. Together, they've helped thousands of real estate investors form and maintain their LLCs and protect their assets. If you're trying to build a real estate portfolio, do not skip the LLC. Head over to CorporateDirect.com to schedule a free 15-minute consultation with an incorporating specialist. Mention Real Estate Ricky and get a $100 discount on your formation. That's CorporateDirect.com. CorporateDirect.com. Hey there, fellow libation lovers. Let's talk about something that's sure to tickle your taste buds. Total Wine & More. Are you ready to embark on a journey through the aisles of endless possibilities? Total Wine & More is your one-stop shop for all things wine, whiskey, and everything in between. From the smoothest Cabernets to the boldest bourbons, they've got it all. And the best part? Their team of friendly guides is here to help you navigate through the maze of choices. Need a recommendation? They've got you covered. But wait, it gets even better. Total Wine & More offers convenient curbside pickup and delivery, so you can stock up on your favorites without ever leaving your car or home. So, what are you waiting for? Dive into the world of Total Wine & More today and discover your next favorite libation. Visit TotalWine.com to learn more. That's TotalWine.com. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Okay, the next question is from RJ Elbers. Let's say a house has two living rooms and I wanted to turn one of them into an extra bedroom by just adding a wall. What's usually the process of getting this accomplished? Do I have to pull permits or can I just hire a contractor to add the wall? Also, if anyone has done this, what does this typically cost? So, Tony, have you ever done this for a short-term rental? Yeah. I mean, we, we've never done just this, but we have done it like as part of a, uh, a larger uh, renovation on a property. And actually, the only time we've added bedrooms, this is a funny story, is that uh, the previous owner, it was a three-bedroom house, and the previous owner knocked down all of the walls between all three bedrooms. They were kind of like set up in like an L configuration. So there was there was a, a hallway, you know, and like there's two doors here and one door here. So it was like a big L. And she just knocked down all the walls and had just like one big, massive master bedroom. <laughs> um, so we just went back and we like put the walls back where they were. So that's the only time that we've done it. Um, we have added like additional bathrooms to a couple of our properties. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the very first time that we added a bathroom, we didn't pull a permit and, um, the city ended up like just so happened to be driving by this property out of all of our properties and saw the work going on. We, we got a stop work order, had to actually pull permits for that property. So, um, I think RJ, the, the safest and easiest 
kind of bet is that once you identify that you want to add additional square footage, bedrooms, bathrooms, whatever it is, uh, go to your city, go to your county, say, hey, here's what I'm looking to do. They're going to say, hey, we need this document, this document, this document, submit those things to them. Uh, and, and, you know, if you want to avoid the risk of getting shut down by the city and getting on their on their naughty list, um, just uh, get those permits pulled up front. It'll, it'll make the process a little bit easier for you. Yeah. And it can definitely depend on, you know, your city that you're into as to what the actual permits you need. So like in Tony's situation, adding a bathroom, like a plumbing permit, you're adding new plumbing to the property. But in this situation, as far as like properties that I have done, the, the code enforcement officers have not required a permit to um, like add a wall that's just making a bedroom because there's no, especially if there's no electric no electrical, being done yeah. or no plumbing. That's you're just literally putting up the wall. Um, You know, one thing that you may have to consider is adding a closet to make it a legal bedroom uh, in the property. So I would just call your code enforcement officer, ask, um, and then, you know, but typically in this situation, I would not see a need for you having to get a permit because it is just a wall going up. And if you're not putting any new electric, like an, an outlet in it or anything like that, then you wouldn't need to get a permit. Yeah. And like you said, I think it does depend also on like what city or county that you're in. Uh, we were in a part of Northwest Arkansas last summer and, uh, you know, we we're looking at some properties out there and the agent that was kind of driving us around, we asked something about the permitting process. He was like, oh, in this county, there is no permitting process. And we're like, what, like, what do you mean? He's like, yeah, you know, if you own the land, you can build whatever you want. And we were like, what? <laughs> you know, yeah. so that almost made me nervous to even buy out there because you have no idea, you know, like what you're, oh, you're going to get. Yeah. The yeah, new development out there. But, possibilities yeah, are endless. Yeah. <laughs> Once you get really rural where I live too, like the towns, like even around me will say like um, building permit required because like a lot of the other towns don't have you know you don't have to have building permits or anything like that so like the towns that do have it like i'm there welcome to this town and then it'll say building building permit permit. yeah Yeah. um and then the last part of this question uh what does this typically cost so um, when you're doing this project it's framing so you have to pay for the lumber depending on you know how well it is you have to put your studs in and frame it out And then you'll have to, I'm assuming this is not an exterior wall, so you wouldn't need any insulation on it. And then you'll need drywall on both sides of the wall. The biggest expense is actually hiring a contractor to come back to finish the drywall. So even though they could frame it, they can hang up the drywall. It's the the taping and mudding and finishing the drywall that's actually going to be kind of like the biggest time waste or time consumption of the contractor because they'll have to let the mud dry and then they'll have to come back and sand it. And then they might have to come back and mud it again and then sand it. But luckily, since it's, you know, it should probably be, you know, you could probably do two boards, maybe a little extra in a wall, depending how big it is. Like I'm just looking at the wall behind me and that'd be like two pieces of drywall. But, um, the, that would be the biggest time consumption is having a contract that would have to come back multiple times, not like something they could finish in a day. And then the painting, I mean, you could probably do the painting yourself or just, you know, when it's dry, the contractor would just paint it in a day, um, unless it needed new coats, but being brand new drywall, you most likely wouldn't need two coats on it. 
Yeah, I've actually never just done it as like a, a project by itself. It's always been like inclusive of like a full gut rehab. So we're spending like, you know, $100,000 on, on renovating the super old home. So I couldn't even ballpark like what it would cost to just do like one wall for one bedroom. Yeah, we actually had, I was going to make this into an Instagram reel today. We had a tenant submit a maintenance request last night saying, I am so sorry. I fell and tripped over my vacuum and put a hole in the wall. Can you please come fix it? And then put a picture up and it's literally like a big hole in the wall and the drywall. And so, you know, the maintenance guy let her know, like we would, um, he would stop by to look at it on Monday to, uh, or whatever day it was to put it, to give her an estimate on the cost to repair it. And she was like appalled. Like, what do you mean I have to pay for it? This was an accident. (laughs) And he was like, Yes, unfortunately, since you caused the damage to the property that, you know, you have to pay to have it fixed, you're more than welcome to use another contractor that's approved by us to go ahead and make the repair for you, or I can come in and and do it. And so then we got this long email from the resident to the property manager just saying, like, she has no idea how to fix this. Like, she can't fix it herself. Like, she should have to pay and no, we're just like laughing. And so like some people get confused sometimes that living in an apartment means that they are in a full care facility. Which is, <laughs> and even still, I bet if you were in a full care facility, you put a hole in the wall that would show up on your monthly bill too. Oh. But um, yeah, so that was something that came up today. But our when we were thinking about like, okay, how much do we charge for that? Because it is so time consuming to to do that patch because you're having to go back to it multiple times to actually like finish the mudding on the drywall and then to, to paint it and actually like paint the match to this someone that has lived there, I think 10 years. So as far as I know, the paint has changed over the, the 10 years, but we'll have to, you know, take a sample and go get it matched at Sherwin Williams and everything like that. But probably be uh cost just as much to <laughs> repair that that without just the labor itself like um, yeah. we've had contractors that won't do such a small job like that because it's they would have to come back four or five times but it's still such a small thing to do yeah funny story i actually put a uh, two holes in my drywall <laughs> as a kid <laughs> i was in like you know like over like my junior high years it was the same apartment me and my mom were living in and uh the first hole was in my bedroom like me and my friends were like all wrestling in my room and like one of us threw each other into the wall and like one of our knees like went through the drywall and the same thing happened downstairs you're like wrestling downstairs and like bumped into the drywall and and broke it there too so um anyway i sympathize with your uh with your do you do you remember what happened did your mom have to pay the property management company to fix it? Or did she have somebody fix it? You You know, I don't remember. I don't remember. Yeah. You know, as a kid, things just like, you know, (laughs) 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 So I got to ask her though. I got to like, Hey, did you? Cause I, part of the reason I want to do the real too, is to like, see like, am I in the wrong? Is this actually something that should be included? But I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) yeah drywall is one of those things that should be like in the same condition after a tenant moves out you know exactly drywall doesn't just like magically disintegrate by itself yeah and also like i think about okay if you owned your own home like what would you do you would call someone and and 
paid for it. I understand like you live in an apartment because more things are taken care of included for you, but and now you got to update the lease. Drywall damages are not included in any repairs that way. They, Which they we do have it as like the move out checklist in there as to like, this is what you will be charged to have a whole fixed upon when you do yeah. move out. So that's oh, a good idea. Maybe I'll just go off of that prices if they were moving out and there was a hole in it. And that's what we would charge. Yeah, that's a good idea. There you go. Okay, another problems. rookie reply. Last week, I got to do a takeover of asking a question. And then today, too, Tony's answering all my questions. Well, we got time for about one more question. So let's take Austin's question. What's up, everyone? As of now, I'm a real newbie with getting into real estate investing. Welcome, Austin. We're excited to have you in this community. I do think I know a lot about real estate now, at least how some processes and numbers work. Love numbers, I'm an engineer. However, I'm curious about how a cash out refinance works. When you take the cash out refinance, are you paying a mortgage on the amount you took out or the entire ARV of the house? I appreciate this group. Great question, Austin. There's a couple different ways, right? So um, let's, let's say Austin, that and I'll, I'll try and use round numbers here so that that way it's a it's a little bit easier for folks to understand let's say that austin buys a home and say that the total cost for him to purchase and rehab that home comes out to sixty thousand dollars so sixty thousand dollars is every dollar that austin put into that property and let's say that he paid cash he paid sixty thousand dollars cash to both buy and rehab that property. Austin then goes out and uh, he gets an appraisal on the property. So he has someone give their opinion of the market value of that property. And they say, Austin, your home is worth $100,000. So he put in $60,000. The home is worth $100,000. Okay. So he, he currently has $40,000 in equity. And I just want to point out, he mentioned the ARV. That is the after repair value. So that is what it appraised for in his situation. So the ARV could be your goal of what you want the property to appraise for, or it could be what you want the property to sell for if you're um, you know, flipping the house. So the, the ARV is important when you're getting a loan because uh, most lenders will not loan you the full appraised value or ARV on a property. So in Austin's situation, the, the home is worth, it's valued, it's appraised at, $100,000. Most lenders will only give you at, you know, depending on what kind of debt you give it, if say you're getting like a, an investment product, maybe you're at like 20%, right? So they'll, they want to keep at least 20% equity in the property. So that means on $100,000, they'll give you 80% of that as a loan. So that means you'll be able to get 80% of $100,000 is $80,000. So let me, let me kind of reset the table here again in this example, the house is worth $100,000. The bank is willing to lend you 80% of that or $80,000 and Austin put $60,000 cash into this property. Okay. So he has a spread of $20,000. The 60 to 80 is that equity that he can tap into. So Austin can then go to a bank, you know, he goes to, you know, whatever local city credit union or, or, you know, main street bank. And they say, Austin, here's a loan for $80,000. This is a cash out refinance because he's getting a full, you know, cash check. He's going to pay back his $60,000 that he put into the deal. And he's going to walk away with an additional $20,000. So that's kind of the, 
process, I guess, for a cash out refinance. It means you're you're paying back whatever money you initially put into this property and you get to keep whatever money is left over up to whatever amount the bank is willing to lend you. So the scenario that Tony gave, great example, and that would work if you got a loan for that initial 60000 So maybe you borrowed that money from a friend or a hard money lender. You would still have the cash out refinance scenario because you're paying 60000 to the hard money lender back and then you're paying you know, you're taking that $20,000 cash. So anytime there's money that doesn't have to be repaid back to anyone, it is called a cash out refinance. So in the scenario that like, maybe you borrowed money from your mom to do this and there is no lien, there's like really no record. She just gave you the money. That whole dollar amount is really going to be considered a cash out refinance because there is no kind of record of actually like refinancing a mortgage where if you went and got, um, you know, hard money on the property and you got that 60000 and you only took out $60,000 and you left that 40000 uh, that 40% equity back into the property and you didn't touch that, then that would just be a refinance because you're just paying off the other mortgage that you had on the property, the hard money. And then I, I just want to clarify like the last couple pieces of his, his question there. So he says... When you take out the cash out refinance, are you paying the mortgage on the amount you took out or the entire ARV? And it's just the amount of the mortgage that you took out. So again, going back to the example, you took out a loan for $80,000. So your mortgage payments will be based on the 80,000, not the ARV of 100,000. And that was our last question today too. Thank you guys so much for always submitting awesome questions. We love answering them. Uh, you guys always come up with different stuff and we love it. So you can submit more questions at biggerpockets.com slash reply. And as always, please leave us a review or rating on your favorite podcast platform. We'd also love for you to subscribe to our YouTube channel. And also one last plug, our real estate partnerships book that just launched in August. Super excited. It's on biggerpockets.com. You can use the code Ashley or Tony to get a discount. Thank you guys so much for listening. We will be back on Wednesday with a guest. We'll see you then. Still, yeah.